Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for Season 3, where we explore all things sports coaching. My guests are going to present their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. Three excellent guests join me this week as we continue Season 3, so please, if you could introduce yourselves and tell us your current role. Good afternoon, Phil. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, so, my name's Danny Newcomb. I am the head coach of the Welsh Senior Hockey Team. Um, and then in another world, I am a senior lecturer in sport coaching MP at Oxford Brooks University. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for the introduction. Um, Mike Ashford. Um, I am a lecturer at Coventry University in sport coaching and also a coach developer across a number of mostly rugby contexts. And then finally, thanks again for having me on, Phil. My name is Luke Taylor. So I'm a strength and conditioning coach by trade um, across various sports, primarily within the Football Association. So after various teams and then similar to Danny I'm a lecturer at Oxford University but across the strength and conditioning strand um, within our students. Fantastic gents absolute pleasure to have all three of you on really looking forward to uh, what you're going to bring to the table so just a quick reminder before we go to Danny to start for anyone listening to check out the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly for links to all the content discussed and recommendations to other high quality content so Danny, we will jump straight in. What is it that you're going to present to us? Well, thanks, Phil. So I've, I've gone out of my normal comfort zone uh, this afternoon um, and, and decided to dive into something a bit different to what I normally talk about. Um, but for a few reasons, really. Um, I'm inter- interested through my PhD. We're sort of presenting different things to coaches around practice design. And what I'm interested in is why coaches adopt it, why they don't, um, why they, which ones decide to explore it which ones filter it out and ignore it. Um, so, so that was quite interesting for me. And then I sort of, from my, where my PhD started within practice design, kind of shifted into sort of, well, coach learning and and, um, and then come across the work of sort of Stoddart and Cushion. So if anyone's interested in this stuff, I'd, I'd dive into their work because they are the kind of the leaders and there's some other key academics in the area that, that, that are linked into this paper around Abrahams and, and people like that. So it's not some, not, not something I'm a huge expert in. So if I get bits wrong or, or I misinterpret them, then it's, it's because I'm reading this as a, as a bit of a coach really as well. Um, so the paper or the chapter actually is called Effective Coach Learning um, and Process of Coach Knowledge Development and What Works. So um, they, they kind of present a model um, which captures the I guess the filtering process coaches go through when they when they get presented with something new or a new idea or or something different. Um, and, I, and I thought that was really interesting. And then reading it, it just kind of resonated with me about the, about the stuff they talked about. Um, they kind of line it up by talking about the coach. There's a really nice quote from Abraham's they use, which is "Coaches are magpies, not filing cabinets," which which I thought was really nice. So, um, you, you kind of we, we kind of pick and choose like. And they use the word serendipity. So we kind of randomly and, and non-systematically kind of pick and choose and pick up bits that we like as coaches um, and, and ignore others rather than everything in being in a neat order in inside that's delivered to us, which I, I found quite nice. And then the fact that we, we, we can't separate out all the learning 
um, situations, endeavors, and, and encounters that we we come across. So I think one thing we've probably fallen into is is separating out learning into CPD and mentoring and, and experience and reflection, and actually try and deal with them separately. And, and really, we need to treat them as interacting elements that all, all link to each other. Um, which I found also made sense to me as well as we had. And then the, the kind of the, the other bits that really made sense to me were um, coaches are just ultimately driven by what works. That, that pragmatic view is what drives us as, as coaches. And if, it, if they think it might work, they adopt it and go for it. If they don't think it's going to work, they pretty much ignore it is how I read the paper. And our biographies, our history of playing and coaching and, and everything we've seen basically act as the filter around what works. Um, so, so it then starts to make sense. Oh, that's why so-and-so didn't pick that up. They're from that background. They've had that experience. Of course, they don't think that's, that's going to work. So, um, or they do and okay, that kind of makes some more sense. And then there's a, another couple of bits in there that were, um, I like the phrase, like the, the practitioners who, and I've been reading some other stuff around pragmatism, so it makes me sound really nerdy, doesn't it? Um, I'd have to thank my other colleagues at, at work, Dr. Simon Phelan um, and Matt Fiander around. There's this thing called crude pragmatism, which is I basically do what works and I'm quite stuck to it. It worked here, so I'm gonna cut and paste it and, and it'll work here. Or this other phrase, which I like, which is um, having a pragmatic temperament, which basically means I've got a bit more flex. I, I kind of, I'm interested in what might work, what could work, what, and open to suggestions about other things that might work um, as well, which I, I quite liked and there's a phrase from Abraham's and Christian which is like these types of practitioners are, are like chefs they have an in-depth knowledge of the ingredients and they develop new ideas and recipes as opposed to a cook who copies a recipe and produces a meal which I thought was a really nice um, analogy for coaching and then the last thing I, I pulled out of it was this thing around seeing is believing so coaches are unlikely to pick something up and use it unless they seen it work um, uh, um so for sort of coach developers and, and we've we've actually got not to tell people that stuff but to show them and, and, and i think that that resonated with me as well because I, I get a lot of stuff back from coaches going yeah i really like the ideas but yeah i wouldn't work in cricket um and then and then you have to go oh, okay I've, I've got to show them it working in cricket uh, ah, okay now i might try it um and go from there so yeah i thought it was a it was a, it was a great overview of coach learning i thought it was a brilliant brilliant chapter and it's an area i'll be digging into a lot more because it, it starts this it's really interesting me really so yeah that was a i don't know if i jabbered on too long but i am an academic and i apologize <laughs> no mate I, that was perfect i think that was really really nice um i guess the first question in there is actually on do you think that's the challenge currently and i've seen kind of lots of people phrase this in various ways but when we're not delivering as coaches and we're only doing zoom stuff online and calls are we actually learning because if we're not seeing anything how much can we talk about an idea or a theory or a whatever else it might be without ever getting that opportunity to implement it so does it just stay as a theoretical or does it then shift across to me still being able to learn and then take something away and implement it or do I only learn it once I've implemented it? I think it makes it harder. And I think like the paper, the chapter said, we can't separate out all the different sort of sites of learning or whatever word you want to use there. And, and we're basically overloading this medium at the minute, aren't we? Because that, that's 
you know, when you, when you get back coaching, you don't have any time for this stuff. So you're probably overloading a different medium. So, and I love to go out. One thing I don't do enough as a coach is just go and watch other sports and, and other coaches because you're too busy coaching the irony. Um, so I think we can show stuff as working online. I just think it's more difficult. We'd have to use video. We'd have to unpick it. We'd have to go that way around rather than just presenting an idea. I think it is limiting. And then I, there's other elements and I don't want to get into it too much around do we in this process of inquiry and solution finding that we, we would struggle to get into if we're not doing the practice. So I guess I've, in a waffly way I've gone, it, it's probably limiting at, at the minute um, for sure, but I still think we can plant some seeds through this process. And I, I, the, the solution finding bit, I find that I think that's a really great point in as much as you can, I think you can find a theoretical solution. You know, you can talk around that and I can go, oh, I think that will work, but you just have no, you have no practical way of deciding that. But, I, and I guess it just maybe lengthens the amount of time between having that thought of, I like this idea because, and actually that opportunity to then apply, apply it in a practical sense to judge whether it works or whether it's successful in that form. So, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I'd dig you towards, um, like Dewey's work and Sean's work around reflection and inquiry. Like Sean uses this lovely phrase, the swampy lowlands where the messy reality of coaching exists. And, it, and, and through that, it presents us the problems that we have to deal with and, and solve without being up to our knees in, in that swampy lowlands, we don't get presented with the problems. So we don't have to reflect and, and find the solution. So I think that's, that's a really nice way of putting it. And then to your point, which I really liked was, Dewey talked about warranted assertions. So warranted was like the stuff that's happened before that I know that's happened. And then assertions is what's most likely to work moving forward. Like what am I, what's probably, like there's no definite series there. So what am I gonna try? Cause based on my last experience and stuff I've read and been introduced to, I'm gonna try and solve that problem in front of me next. And then just understanding that every problem we deal with in coaching is different. It's a minefield once you get into it. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why anyone would actually want to coach, to be completely honest, because it's just, yeah, can never get it right. But I, I think I wonder whether that also links to, uh, um, Ed Hall talks about that kind of imagined future, that, that whenever we're planning something, we're always going, yes, I can assess the current situation, but that's only ever my perspective of it. But actually, I'm imagining what the input is, what the outcome is. And then, yeah, the, the reality is, as we know, very, very different. So. I gave my students the, uh, I've been watching a lot of Marvel films lately. Um, I gave them the analogy of Doctor Strange going into the future and work, going through all the possible um, alternate futures based on decisions made. Uh, almost that's what we're in our heads as coaches trying to do, I think. Like we're trying to look ahead and go, what's most likely to work here? And what are all the different options of where this is going to land? Sorry, that was random. <laughs> no, no, no. Any Marvel reference is good with me. I love that. Um, I'll open this out to, to all of you guys. Is it's How do we think this maybe changes across the journey of a coach? So I, I'm thinking as a new you know, parent coach or just a young player that's retired that's got into coaching, however you get into it, do, is there a tendency from your guys' experience to see young coaches or new coaches just go right, I'm going to take this, I'm going to take this, I'm going to take this, and I'm just going to apply it blindly. And then does that become more nuanced, do you think, as we get more experience? So do you then have a little bit more of a thought structure around 
why would I try take this and try it or not that kind of magpie piece and the other extreme of that I, I actually see some criticism now of that at conferences or various things where people stand there and kind of glib comments around well how many people are gonna you know be delivering this practice tonight at their club session or something like that and you kind of go is there really anything wrong with that like is that not how we've always all done it to varying degrees or another so where where would the thoughts be in the room on that so i'm i really enjoyed the kind of spiel from danny and kind of to jump in on on what you were kind of implying there phil and i think that lockdowns kind of or the the various lockdowns we've been is kind of almost highlighted kind of the the social media coach almost it's like oh there's a there's a new a new shiny drill there or a new shiny practice there you know i definitely want to try that and it's kind of what we would have traditionally done when we we've been to a conference and we've had yeah i'm definitely going to try that when i when i get home tonight and i've fallen foul of that and i think that the strength and conditioning field is exactly the same as the technical tactical field in that sense we we see a jazzy new exercise on instagram or twitter and we're like oh wow that looks great and i'm the first person i want to go and try that in a gym and you know can't walk for three or four days afterwards normally and then um i want to as a young coach i definitely would have wanted to try that with my athletes and i think you, as you said the more the more you kind of rehearse these kind of programs and you, you, you practice these programs and you get a little bit more experience you kind of learn that the simple stuff works quite well and you become maybe less magpie in your way and you you're less excited by that diamond ring or that that bit of gold and you kind of realize that the simple stuff is this potentially the stuff that's potentially more effective um and i really like that kind of chef not cook and you haven't got to just chuck the ingredients in and you can be a little bit more i don't know what the kind of way a bit more effective with the simple stuff um and it's potentially the way you structure the simple drills or the practices or the practice design opposed to just throwing everything and seeing what sticks um, kind of resonated with me as you as you kind of progress through your coaching journey. Just, just to touch on to that, um, something that really jumped out when both of you were talking is the idea of conceptions of learning. Um, it, we can look at Entwistle and Peterson's work around how learners actually engage with different content and um, not to use big jargony words, but um, this idea of dualism, multiplism and relativism. And that as learners, when we engage with new tasks, we can progress along that continuum, depending on what the task is that we're engaging with. And so if I give a, so dualism would simply be that I, I see something, I see that something is working, I'm going to apply it within my own practice. Multiplism being that we, there are multiple realities that we can look at the same problem through. So if we take a multiplistic approach, then we're going to take all realities and apply it all at the same time. Whereas a relativistic approach would be, right, I'm going to take these multiple realities, work out what works for me in my context, understand why they work in that context, and then apply it. And I think that simplicity comes over time when you really grasp, well, what is it we're doing and why are we doing it? And then you can apply multiple different realities within one, one specific context. Jump on Phil's point there, um, Mike, and ask you, do you think that that can only happen as a result of experience and reflection, that we get the ability to, to do that? And, and the start of that process is just trying stuff and working out, you know, essentially what I call cookie cutter or cut and paste. It in, yeah. Then it doesn't work and you're like, why isn't that working? 
it worked for that guy and that over there and then now it's not working for me over here uh, and then you start to question the context and, and you and then the people and then it's that clunky process the start of it and we, the one we need to go through as coaches first or can we just automatically advance to level three relativism and, and get stuck in i don't know I mean, from from my perspective, I think absolutely it's clunky, it's messy to begin with. And we tend to live our lives through the vicarious experiences that we've achieved ourselves through others as coaches. I know when I started out as a coach, I used all the same terminology of systems, the same practices as my coaches at university, because that was my reality. But then you you swiftly begin to, it, if you if you engage with that system in a case of, right, I'm going to collect as much data. And I don't mean data as in numbers. I just mean data is, and I'm going to collect as, as much as I can in terms of feedback. Then that feedback will give you an indication of, right, that's really working there. And so that that's something in my back pocket now that I'm going to continue with. But by us also being aware and reflective of that might not work in another context. Uh, and absolutely, I think it builds over time with experience, but it builds even more effectively with with in-depth reflection. I think that's the fascinating thing, isn't it? Because you can say any coach is dealing with people, but that would just be to simplify beyond measure because everybody is coming to every environment, every session with a different experience, with a different culture, with a different uh, desire, outcome, all of those types of things. So then when you start adding those layers of detail to where am I actually in my own development as a coach, I, that's just really hard, isn't it? So, and I, it kind of leads on to that coach development question of why maybe do we not have the appropriate structures and I don't know whether I'm living in you know fantasy land here but I just don't think we necessarily help coaches through that process enough in that informal CPD or however that looks like qualifications are great they serve a purpose absolutely but is there not just this huge void in between everything else where you're going like yes maybe and that's that what's you know highlighted through lockdown lots of these kind of conversations and there's lots of informal stuff but actually is is there anyone holding your hand and, and just helping you through that i don't know i think it's mentoring but i think there's so much we don't know about and, and we're not great at that yet i don't think so i think that the person who sits with you and, and when you're planning asks you really good questions and then goes out and watches and then during up asks you some great questions and then afterwards asks you some great questions to just to stimulate that that deeper level of critical reflection which might accelerate your journey forwards i just don't think there's there's many people that are great at that skill yet that, that's that's it i think there are, and the scary thing is with lockdown and, and money being slashed and stuff the first thing that's going to go from a lot of these ngbs is, is it's the coach development mentor. So, um, yeah, I, I'd say the research is pretty clear on the fact that drop-in CBD stuff that's quite formal has limited effect. But I don't think that that means it's bad. It just means we're not following it up enough. Um, uh, so I, I think that's where we need to go to. But it's resource-heavy. It's highly skilled. You know, it's it's relationship-driven. So you know, I, I, this kind of Russian roulette mentoring that happens now that you know that here's your mentor great how, how, how do you know if we're going to get on how do you know they're going to help me you know um so it's like those sorts of things i think the challenges that within coaching and coach development we need to solve next for, for sure i mean just on that uh, phil sorry uh just on that i guess 
I guess one thing is, is who who's challenging or who's challenging people's assumptions around coaching, uh, especially when we're engaging with formal CPD. Because I think even, even me, when I engage with CPD, I, I like to hear things that I'm doing and I like to hear things that I'm doing well. And they tend to be, they tend to be the things that resonate with me. Whether it's an, when we look at what Danny was saying there about that mentorship and that idea, someone is consistently challenging my assumptions about the way I do things and the way I engage and create a learning environment. And that just becomes a much more powerful learning experience for coaches. So whilst there are some great golden nuggets, as you might call them, I, I do feel as though that that challenging of, of well-grounded assumptions is really important for coach development. This, this actually leads into a uh, Twitter conversation that Derek Reardon and Dusty Miller were having that I jumped in on around this kind of mentoring piece. And do, do you naturally align yourself with someone that's more like you? Is that going to be more beneficial for you potentially, as opposed to someone that's very different? There's probably, you know, positives and, and negatives for both. But I, I think that becomes a really interesting point around how willing you are to be challenged with at what point does that then break if someone is very different to you and you almost feel that they're guiding you or challenging you in a way that you're not comfortable with you know what I mean it then becomes really complicated doesn't it as you say and it, and it's just this role of the mentor how do you influence what's the purpose of influence how do you challenge I yeah it's it's just layer upon layer upon layer of detail which is fascinating oh uh, yeah absolutely I think just just to touch on that, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I guess uh, I, I remember Derek saying that, oh, well, are we starting to see ourselves within those learners? So it's a never-ending cycle, really, isn't it? Because who's then challenging the coach developer in that light? Are, are we just looking to create a mini-me? Uh, and that self-checking, that self-reflection, it's just important in any walk of learning, so... Go on, Danny, did you want to jump in? Yeah, um, so Katie's boiling the kettle, so um, <laughs> in the background. Um, the other one to think about is like, then as coach developers, are we so scared of presenting certain things that are our biases because we feel like, oh, am I allowed to say that to you? Because ultimately, am I now steering your practice based on my thoughts around coaching? That, that for me, like, we almost get into that point where it's like, oh, I'm a big fan of this. You thought about that, and you go, well, "Is that is that the responsible of me to do that as a as a mentor, I don't, or should I be presenting everything to you?" And you go, "Which one do you want?" Um, I don't know. Um, I, I do feel like that's where we might end up. Yeah, I yeah. If someone can solve that, I've definitely got that problem. That is that. But then I wonder, actually, are you better off just being upfront about it and saying, "Look, this is where I sit. I'm pretty comfortable in knowing what I I enjoy and what I like and why my preference is for these things. My job isn't." sell you on this but I'm going to talk from my place of experience because I'd be doing you a disservice if I didn't if that resonates and then I guess that be, that becomes the, the the kind of you know Anna's work around that loop so if I present something to you and say this is my experience of this and this is why it will work in the context and everything else and you go mm, yeah I think that will work then then you're into that cycle aren't you so it's does it matter where that comes from if that's a mentor or somebody else I, I wouldn't think so um I don't think so. I don't, like you said, it's a languaging piece, isn't it? We should like, soften our, lang our language a little bit around some of the things and present them as ideas and, and possibilities that they can explore. I think I think you hit the nail on the head there. Let's be sensible um, and not, not get too wrapped up in it. 
Yeah, I, I think I'd definitely prefer, if I was the mentee, I'd prefer someone to go, this is where I sit, rather than then work out six months down the line, like, oh, no, that's why they always talk about that stuff, because that's what their preference is. Not that you do it in a subversive way, but do you know what I mean? You just be like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes more sense. But um, last question on this before we shift on. In as simple a way as possible, we've kind of talked around um, thinking about what works. What, as a coach for you guys in your environment, what would your kind of go-to assessments be for? You've taken something, you've tried it. How do you judge whether it works or not? And again, I'm I'm oversimplifying this because this could this could probably be you know a couple of weeks talking about this. But what what would kind of maybe be like the top one or two things you'd be looking for to go? Yeah, I think I'm going to keep this and experiment with it more because in my head it's ticked a box as working I guess by the delay no one wanted to answer that question because of how difficult it was but um I'll have a go uh, I'll just come back to Bob Muir's coaching planning and practice reflective framework which is how well does that person or that coach achieve the end in mind and how well constructed was that end in mind to begin with so if we think about a learning outcome or a session objective was it constructed with the players wants and needs in mind was it appropriate given their their development? And then were the practice structure, so the learning design and the coach behaviours, were they appropriate to allow the players to engage back towards those outcomes? I think outside of that, there isn't much more I, I'd assess with because I think reflection then comes from there and assessment should include reflection as well. So uh, I guess that's a massive sit on the fence answer. It depends on the end in mind. <laughs> I'd echo that like intention. Intention should drive every decision you, you make in the planning process in line with the context. And then you're in, you should circle back round to your intention um, through, through your kind of like did it work um, conversation that you're having. Um, but I was reading something like if you're going past reflection and into reflexivity, which is a minefield, you start to go, well, did I only think it worked because that's what my bias is? And then you start spinning yourself out completely. Um, and, and also you've got like, Great, great session, Dad. Love that tonight. Thought that was brilliant. Which normally the players come back with. It was good. I I scored lots of goals. My team won. And, and versus, our t- you know, am I designing success into my session or am I designing failure in? And, t- and t- but that then also goes back round to intention as well, I guess. So um, it's a mess. So in, in, in short, um, but yeah, I think your intentionality should probably act as the as the one bit of guiding. Um, in that questioning process yeah I kind of like jump on the back of those two and the kind of things around um, and I'm not a big advocate of just creating hustle to create hustle so like making the session look busy isn't always going to be a, a great thing and um, uh, a coach I've often look, look up, looked up to in kind of the s and was a guy called John Goodwin I think he's a, a phenomenal coach and he often co- talks about coaching ugly so sometimes the sessions don't need to look amazing for them to be successful. And, um, you know, does, you know, as Danny just said, setting athletes up to, to fail sometimes can be a really successful thing. So, you know, to go back to what Mike and Danny said, you know, are we creating opportunities for the, these athletes to fail and almost figuring it out for themselves? So what is our intention? And then reflecting on that is, is that the six, have we created success, success around that? So, um, very much sitting on the fence there as well. I think if you go, sorry, I'm just thinking out loud now, if you, if you circle back to like, what's the purpose in, in, in certain contexts, it's, well, it's to improve the player's ability to solve problems on the pitch. So 
if you're seeing them improve uh, at solving problems on the pitch, then you feel like, ah, I think what we're doing in training might, might be working. But cause and effect is impossible to prove. So how do you know which bits have the impact? So like those, those sorts of things. Now, you, I genuinely think you can see changes in behavior in your session. So you'd be able to see someone doing something differently from what they couldn't do at the start that they now could do towards the end. Well, I think that's probably a demonstration to you that something's changed. Um, if that then transfers into the game environment, then you, you probably, you might be thinking that that's the practice that's had the impact. But I, I would be cautious with it because how, how do you know? But um, yeah, that's probably where, where, where I sit on as well. And that's probably from the performance point of view as well. So a very challenging question. I think they were three excellent answers. So good, good effort all round. And, and I've learned a new word, reflexivity. So I'm definitely gonna you know, try and sound clever by using that a bit more often. So yeah. Nice. Every day's a school day. Uh, cool. Right. I'm conscious of time already, but uh, we will shift this on. So, Mike, we're going to come to you. Um, what is it that you're going to discuss? Uh, thanks, Phil. Um, I'm going to discuss a kind of umbrella article, really, that I can't take credit for finding. It was actually I um, it was I was having one of my frustrated days on Twitter and decided to have a bit of a rant about the way Twitter was going with with a lot of posts saying, oh, this is the way coaching should be done. Very definitive, very absolute statements about coaching. Um, and a, a professor at Leeds Beckett got in touch, uh, Jim McKenna, and said, oh, have you seen this work from uh, Stephen Shorrock? Stephen Shorrock works in ergonomics, so it has nothing to do with coaching. So it's very much around human performance. But he sent me this article and the the article is centered on a model that looks at human work and by human work, we can equate that to any context. So a player playing rugby through to an engineer within a certain system. And basically it goes from the, the two ends of the spectrum from out and out ideas in research all the way through to performance and practice. And basically it separated work into four, which was work as imagined, work as prescribed, work as disclosed and work as done. And all of a sudden, just reading those four different things really jumped out to me because it seems like every single context in human work seems to be having the same issue, where a lot of our research is invested in the work as imagined uh, around, oh, right, so this is my lens, my view of the world, my philosophical view of the world. Uh, that means I'm going to view coaching in this way. And therefore, when I explore what coaching is, that's what I view coaching as. Whereas what Stephen Shorrock's saying is, well, how can we better understand what works all the way through from what we're imagining it to be all the way through to what is actually being done in that context at that time? And basically, I, I just picked out two secondary resources, which was a recent page, paper by Brockery and Beard. I think Brockery is a French author, so I think I've definitely pronounced that name wrong, But so I'm just going to say sorry for that. Um, but one being from the French Institute of the Sport and the other one being from Chicago Cubs baseball team. And they kind of created this paper, which is a declaration of their model to bridge the gap between research and practice in the sense that they have a research team on site at the Chicago Cubs. And then everyone works in line and it's a constant to and fro between, right, workers imagine this is what we intend to do. This is what we're going to get down on paper for a plan. So from a prescribed and disclosed point of view, and then we need to assess and explore how that's actually being done on the field. Um, and then that kind of led me on to the last paper, which was uh, again, touching on Chris Cushion's work with Ed Cope, 
around a recent drive to reconceptualize direct instruction. Uh, someone just needs to go onto Twitter, and I'm definitely guilty of this, to see dichotomies being thrown around. This is the way you should coach. This is the way you should behave. And I think those, those two questions are very much dependent, as we've already mentioned, on the context, what works, our pragmatic view of reality. And I, I just think this is a real nice model to think, well, that's great as, a, as an idea, as a source of imagination, and it's great as it being disclosed. So by disclosed, I mean the coach has said it. So they've been interviewed, and that's what they think they do. But how does that then transcend, how does that then transcend into reality? Well, how does that go through all four from idea to reality? So that was my uh, presentation, I guess. <laughs> I love it. I think it's really pertinent, isn't it? And I, I think I said this a few times, certainly in, in you know episodes of this, but also on Twitter. I, I'm just not sure the debate's moved on. In my head or what I read still seems to be we're having the same arguments and the same discussions that we were five, seven years ago. And I, that frustrates me. And I don't know if it's just because it's people that maybe just like having debates and arguments and, and that's the nature of social media now and, and that the you know they just enjoy it so they're not they're not bothered about change. But I, I'd like to think most people would be. You know, there's a reason for that discussion. But actually I'm just wondering, and again, you know, open question, how do you think we get beyond maybe the mud we're stuck in currently? What does that kind of look like, Mike, in in yeah like real terms i guess i guess in response to that we're we're talking about paradigms ideas like again what we prioritize and privilege based on our own biographies so touching back to anastata's work um but i do feel as though it, it's how we make sense of our reality our, our context and i think for coaches out there it's very easy to understand a pragmatic view of reality because as Danny said, as coaches, we are almost innately driven to use what works. Because if we don't use what works, then we don't get the results that we intend in the first place. So therefore, that pragmatic reality sits really well with coaches. But that, that's not the way research is always conducted. So um, as you said earlier, there's this idea that it depends and it depends on the context. It depends on what you're trying to achieve. But there are others who say, well, no, you need to coach in this way because that's their view of the world. That's what they prioritize and privilege. So I guess we're never going to get any further with the argument until people are willing to put their, their research, their theory on the line uh, and put their neck out and say, right, we need to test this as an actual hypothesis to see if it works or not, which one is an extremely difficult thing to do because how the hell do you find validity and reliability in a moving piece like coaching? It's next to impossible. And two, it takes a real bold person to put their ego to one side and say, I'm really going to test my theory or my view of the world. So I think dichotomies will always exist and differences in opinion will exist, but it's evidence and the why evidence that we really need to focus on from my point of view. Yeah. I don't want to dive into the, the, the Twitter sphere debate. Um, other than it's just, I don't think it's the right medium for, for these discussions. You're basically reading like clickbait headlines um, of the of, of whatever that is. And actually, once you speak to the people, every everyone behind those, when you get into the detail, most people are saying similar stuff, um, just coming at it from a different perspective or a different point of view. And, and everyone's a lot more pragmatic 
once you get into the detail. So I, I, I it's just too difficult on Twitter because it's it's that too too few characters to have the discussion around coaching, which is so complex. So yeah, I think that's how I see. It. I kind of try and avoid the skirmishes these days, but um, they're not they're quite amusing to watch from the sideline. Um, so that that's probably one thing I think around around Twitter. We haven't worked out how best to use it to because it can be really useful um, uh, and, and other social media platforms. The bit that was interesting, I thought, uh, was around sort of finding this a bit with my PhD research is coaches starting to use some of the language and the words that have been presented to them. Um, but then when you talk about their practice, it doesn't correlate across. Um, there's, there was a paper, I think, quite a while ago around rugby about game sense. And I think it was, it was called, we're using game sense, aren't we? And I, uh, they interviewed loads of coaches and they said they were using game sense and they used all the game sense words, but actually when they looked at their practice, it was the same as it had been previously. So like we're almost retrofitting things we hear to our current practice rather than challenging and changing our current practice based on what we've been introduced to, which I, I find quite common. Um, and something we all do, I think we go, oh yeah, I'm doing that, definitely. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that fits the framework you presented, Michael, was it interesting? I need to read some more really. Absolutely. I guess that was kind of the thought process behind it is, well, if we look at work as disclosed in a coaching context, that's exactly what you're doing when you interview someone is to find out what their perceptions and beliefs are about the way they think they coach. But surely we then should go further to say, well, right, let's take those beliefs and let's look at them and how they work in practice. So let's systematically observe how coaches behave or what sort of learning activities they set out. And then even after that, confront them back with the footage of what they've been doing to then, well, this aligns, but this doesn't. But not only then just say that it aligns or misaligns, but tap into why. Because if we don't tap into, well, what was the why behind why you behave like that, even though you said you were going to behave like this? And you know what the likely answer is? Well, I needed to in order to achieve my session objectives. So what we're getting into there is the idea of professional judgment and decision making. So I have these beliefs, but I'm able to tinker those beliefs based on what I'm trying to achieve. And so I, I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head is if we're really going to support coaches to learn, it's not only what they think they do, it's what they do and then how those two things relate to each other as well. I think that's a really interesting piece. Like a lot of the terminology now is kind of, you know, meet them where they are, which I think is brilliant. But I, I'd also off the back of this discussion go, well, which version of you are you meeting? Are you meeting the the, the, the kind of, you know, the, the professional face of it that I'm going to talk about what I do? Or are you meeting the, the practical reality of what I talk about? Because I think everyone, I don't know anyone that would be, some will be far closer aligned than others. Absolutely. I don't know anyone that doesn't have almost two sides to that. Do you know what I mean? Because I think that's that's just the nature of people. And, and you can, you know, shift this well away from coaching. You, you could literally say that about anyone in their daily life. What they say and what they do are always potentially going to be quite starkly different or, or somewhat different. So is that just human nature? Does that make it impossible? Is our job then to, to sit in the middle and try and pull, pull the two together or get them to recognise that the other one exists if they're not aware of that? I, I'm, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I've actually got quite a funny story about this. I had another rant on Twitter about referees in rugby and I was complaining about people complaining about referees. And then some of my players from university 
called me out on on the post saying, Mike, you're absolutely dreadful on the side of the pitch. And I was like, yeah, that's an absolute contradiction. So I'm living and breathing my own contradictions, basically. Um, I was going to say, so similar to what you were saying there, Mike, right? like living and breathing contradictions and kind of like going from what you imagine to, to what you actually has done in practice. So a good friend of mine um, is a head coach um, in football and he's fortunate enough he travels with two analysts and one of the analysts, obviously traditional analysts, would, would spend their time watching the players and he actually started, now started, one of the analysts just records him in the session and one of the analysts records the team because he's really interested in um, seeing what he actually does because he was like, you know, I, I'm really conscious about what I say and I'm, I'm not saying a lot and I'm I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And the, and the analyst said, well, do you actually want to see the report? And I've, I've written the report and he, and it was like ball rolling time, coach time, um, intervention time, it, it, a fantastic report. And he sent it to me and I was like, it was like, a 90 minute session and 35 minutes of it was me talking. And I was like, I did, I thought I spoke for like five minutes within the session. And he said, without that kind of intervention of the analyst doing it, it was off his back, but he was like, I would have never known that. And I would have thought that it was me saying one or two key pieces of information and then stepping back out. So he's working really closely now with his analyst to kind of, kind of rectify that because, you know, he imagined that he was, being really impactful, but what actually was being done was the stark opposite of that. Um, so yeah, I think it's obviously difficult potentially without that technology, but it's almost in the back of our mind as coaches thinking, am I saying, you know, the most with the least um, opposed to just blabbering on potentially like I've done now. <laughs> I, think, I think for for coaches listening and, and maybe like my club sessions aren't, aren't filmed and mic'd and I don't, I can't get the detail, but just getting a parent or a player just to time like how long the ball's in play for in your session and, and how long you speak for is just so useful for coaches in terms of information. Um, just to start the reflective process with, with some you know, a bit more objective data, yeah, that resonates with me. Obviously. I think there's some shortcuts to that as well, isn't there? You know, you take GoPro, a, a camera of some sort that you can just stop, you know, strap on a body harness. You're probably talking a reasonably good one for like 40, 50 quid now. They're not, they're not hundreds of pounds unless you go with the branded one. So I think even just getting used to having that on, you know, wear it often enough that you forget it's on because then, then at least you're going to get truer behaviors um, rather than that. I know I'm on camera, so I've, I've got to be on my best behavior because, and that's the interesting bit, isn't it? it may, you know, is that the, the person that sits in the middle when you know you're being observed and that you've had a conversation with someone previously about what you were going to do is that then when you see that I know, I know I've got to do this, but once they forget they're being observed, then, then you're into the, the real them, I guess. So um, yeah, I the big shout out to him actually. Aaron Tackle has done some really nice work around this off the back of uh, some of Rob Mason's uh, research around kind of in-game communication. And, and I was one of the, he's done two of mine actually just wearing those GoPros when I was in Canada and, and doing some sessions with him. And just that feedback is, is really interesting. He, he makes it look really, really nice because it's coded and because it's, it's really specific, but just actually, I mean, he's, he literally just kind of qualifies what the, the questions were or what the information is 
And I think that's just gold dust. And as you say, it doesn't, I don't think it needs to be, if you haven't got coding software or whatever, it doesn't matter, but you can get into some of that by just listening to yourself back and going, what, what am I asking? And being, maybe that's the other question. How willing are we to do that? Maybe that's the, that's the bridge to divide that no one wants to do between what I say and what I do. It's terrifying. The first time you do it, it's it's something you have to do a few times before you get comfortable with it. Like it's, head in hands at times I think when I when you listen to yourself back you just go oh uh, incredibly powerful and useful I think as a coach but I think you've got to, got to be ready for it I think especially with a soft Birmingham accent as well it never goes down well but again um, do we need to start people off on that journey earlier in their career uh, you know um, we'd all be pretty experienced coaches and yeah I could probably list I don't know, maybe 10, 15 times I've done that. It's not something I do every time. And, and again, that's probably an excuse. And, and I'll be honest around what I say and what I do. I'll always go, well, have I got time to watch it back and invest in that? Am I slightly scared of what I'd find? Probably yes. But do, do we need to just get newer coaches really comfortable with this is part of the process in the same way? And this is the irony maybe of it. That's exactly what you're doing with the players. You're watching them and you're making judgments, but you're just not not necessarily comfortable particularly quickly with someone doing exactly the same to you. So I, I don't know. Maybe that's a, a solution to to speed that process that process up. We just need to get people doing it earlier. I don't know whether that, I don't know enough about this. So it's a question really for the for, the, for, the, for everyone here is. Do you end up in like some kind of paralysis by analysis over analysis if you do it too often? I mean, I've got players who don't want to watch their clips back as often as others and, and some that obsess over their clips from a, from a game and, and is that healthy I, 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 is there some tacit stuff going on there's, there's a lot of questions wrapped up in that one I don't know the answers to yes just from my point of view it's similar to the way we were with players we might show them clips or present them with that when we're trying to target a specific a specific skill or a specific decision or a specific piece of knowledge that we're trying to get that player to develop. I think it goes the same way with coaches. And that's jumping back to what you said at the start, Danny, about this idea of a mentor. Um, we can separate like coach learning into formal, non-formal and informal learning experiences. But that coach who has someone who might say, you know what, when you question, you don't leave it open, you answer your own question. So what we're going to do is we're going to film, film your coaching and we're going to only focus on your behaviours when you question. And just so you can see what I mean, and just someone to stop and have and have that interaction with a coach could be extremely powerful. But where's the opportunity for that uh, from a CPD point of view and from a NGB point of view that there isn't unless you're in a privileged position in the first place. If you're at university or if you've sought that sort of experience or if you're going for a level three or a level four. So I do think, are we getting coach learning right in that sort of area? Uh, I guess that then comes back down to those kind of resource questions and time and the experience of the people that can do it. And I don't know, naively, are we now in a position where almost generationally, so I'm thinking that real generalization, there's an age difference in in some of this. I'm looking at Mike being younger than me for sure. But when we're all retired, would then be way more people as coach developers and mentors available or do, do we think that people just drop off that kind of conveyor belt? I, I'm not, I, I wouldn't have the knowledge or the experience. I, there'll be some people that are clearly older than me, more experienced that could probably answer that and say, no, there are hundreds of mentors out there or thousands of mentors, but I just don't see them. I, I don't know if I have, a, you know, 
an answer to this question, but will we are we growing? I guess is the question I'm asking. Are we growing the number of coach educators and mentors currently to overcome that problem in five, 10, 15, 20 years time? Because that's how long it's going to take for people to stop coaching and then go into doing that more full time or whatever. I guess there's there's been a recent positive step with Simpsa uh, starting to develop a coach development award. So it's actually now becoming something that, well, you need this in order to do it. Um, and I, I do think that there are plenty of people who will call themselves coach developers because they interact with coaches. Um, but I think what's really important is that it's done for the right reasons. It's not just done because I want to be a coach developer. It's done because that coach needs the support and needs the guidance. And so I guess it will depend on the context because certain sports have some extremely well-held values and well-held uh, contextual and cultural factors. That means that coach development perhaps won't be accepted in the, in those contexts, whereas others might be completely receptive and open. So the answer, my answer is I have no idea. <laughs> Got no idea. Do you need to have coached to be a coach developer in the same way? Do you need to have been a player to be a coach? Uh, is the coach to coach developer closer than player to coach? I don't, I don't know. That's just come to mind. That that might be one for another day. I'm not sure. What, what a great question. Um, obviously going to sit on the fence and go, it depends. Um, but th there's a crossover between like, I guess, personal development coaching, isn't there? And sort of business coaching, if, if you like. Um, and people who can ask really good questions that are, that you to explore and develop yourself i think there's a generic transferable set of skills there that i think you could drop a mentor in from different different contexts i do i do believe that um if someone's going to ask really good questions around coaching and notice really good stuff within your coaching i suspect they they need to have been in and around coaching um to a certain extent so to what level and they've coached um i don't think that's that's probably up, up for grabs but yeah I, I sit on the fence a little bit but you, you've got to know the context to ask the right question I think or at least word it word it well do you think they need to know the sport as well Danny to some extent to understand some of the decisions those coaches are making great great question um I, I think it's there's positives and negatives to both I, I think when I go and sort of do some coach development in sports that i have a little knowledge about other than sitting on an armchair and watching it and, and, and enjoying it. Um, it does, it's, it's quite disarming because I'm not coming in telling them how to coach their sport because I'm not being presented as someone who knows loads about it. So they actually listen more um, or it can work the other way. It's like, this guy knows nothing about this sport. What's he going to tell us? So yeah, there, there's, I think there's pros and cons to both. And I think as a mentor, if you're so into that sport, you can just get just get absorbed in the X's and O's and, and, and you know, the 442 and, and, and maybe miss some of the, the other elements. So yeah, I, I wouldn't want one of each, maybe. <laughs> that resource issue is getting worse. I was going to ask, do you get a lot of resistance from, say, the cricketers, the footballers, coaches, when you come in with potentially less knowledge of the sport? I don't think so. I mean, whenever someone steps out in front of a room or, or talks to people, immediately the, the, the room is going, like, who's this guy? Am I going to listen? Uh, like, immediately. Um, so 
I think like a bit of self-deprecation and a bit of pre presentation that you don't know anything about it and, and t tends to help things and it sort of um, disarms them. But yeah, it's, it's tough walking into a room of coaches with a bunch of very bright people with strong views on what works. Um, and then if you're presenting stuff, like you said, that they go, oh, yeah, I love all this. This, this confirms my biases. This is exactly me. I, I love this guy. Or, nah, not buying it. You know, that, that's that's what you're faced with. But that's that's the fun bit of coach development, I think, um, around how we how we present things. It's, it's such good questions to answer. I wonder if that's the bit around or how you pitch it. You, you know, you're almost coming in as that naive expert then, aren't you? And just going, I don't know this. Just explain to me why you do it this way. And sometimes no one's ever asked that question or no one's ever had to, had to ju you know, justify their answer. So I think that as a process can be really beneficial just to, to be slightly disruptive in a, as you say, a disarming way rather than a confrontational, I've got a better idea than you, so I'm going to question why you do something where you're just going, I've got no idea why you do it. You tell me. Maybe that's more unnerving for some people. I'm not sure, but it, it, I think that can definitely just challenge that, that status quo quite, quite effectively. I couldn't agree. Like coming in and just asking questions, um, I think the most powerful thing. So I, I, people might know I do a little bit of work around skill development and, and practice design. And, and you sort of come in and ask questions like, so who's the most skillful player in your sport? What makes them the most skillful? That's at least half an hour taken up of one of my, one of my workshops. Um, you know, but what, why, why? Okay. So that's what you decide skill is like, what, what, what practices might we use to, to develop that that's interesting you've just said that the most skillful players are adaptive so you can start to like cleverly frame questions that explore their understanding rather than standing up and preaching and going this is what i think about practice design and skill development so yeah i think that those that that's important because it takes them on that journey towards what might work Luke, what would that look like from a conditioning perspective? Obviously, a slightly different environment in that you might be working more with individuals, you still might be working with the team, but it, it's, you know, there's not that tactical element to it. Is it is it the same? Would you guys still be kind of looking at that going, you know, why is somebody challenging me on the way I'm coaching or what I'm coaching? Or do you think it, because of the differences in the role, it, it's a slightly different kind of relationship? So traditionally... Um, and kind of in years gone by, you would have, you say you worked in hockey um, and you would always work in hockey or you'd work in cricket. You'd always be, you'd be like pigeonholed as the cricket guy or the football guy or the rugby guy. That's kind of changed in years gone by. So um, you'd see now people kind of move in and out of sports um, and they kind of go to and from and they become more generalist as opposed to being the specialist in certain sports um and uh again an, another member of member of staff that i've become quite close with a guy called bryce Kavanagh. he talks about a t a t-shaped employee um so they have this broad specialism at the top um and then this depth of generalist so they have like a broad specialism um which they're comfortable with so the t at the top and then a depth of generalism so they can coach kind of and be comfortable coaching lots of sports and lots of different training modalities. And then they have this specialism, which they um, can kind of cope with lots of demands um, as well as that, I guess. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how the, the industry's developed, but we're a very young profession. Um, 2004, um, the accreditation in the UK 
existed and then in the US it's been around for a, lot, for a little bit longer but not not that long at all. Do you think that then changes is that a, like a sizable change in the landscape in terms of and, and well you say it's new I mean is coaching still catching up I'm thinking of you just don't actually have to have a qualification to be a coach. Do you know, you, you, you know, I could coach for 10 years on a Sunday morning with a team and I've never stepped foot on any sort of CPD or engaged in anything. Whereas it, would that have changed from a conditioning perspective, you now to be with a team or in an environment, you would have to have. That so, so you still don't have to be. So um, all four of us on the call right now could call ourselves strength. Well, there's various names for us at the moment. Strength and conditioning coaches, performance practitioners, physical performance coaches, gun specialists whatever you want to kind of call yourself um they are trying to kind of standardize the name so as mike said simspar has kind of created the coach mentor so simspar is trying to support um the national governing body in trying to become like a protected title like physiotherapy i think we're quite a long way off but um they're they're, they're trying to i think it's quite a, a political land land like landscape that we're in at the moment but yeah it's a new field but it's they're making progress, but it's it's slow. Um, but it's similar to you guys coaching. There's, there's, it's resonated with me so much listening to this this conversation around the, the Twitter spats. Like we have, we have. I, I I I'm like Danny. I'm a lurker. I like to watch in the background. Like what's better, back squat, front squat, Olympic lifting? Should we do it? Like the fights are hilarious, and it's just like, come on, guys. Like there's there's bigger and much more important things we should be having discussions about, and the mediums at which we should be having them are shouldn't be 140 characters. But yeah. My my observation of SNC that is Luke and you share this that they've moved massively away from quite a technical um, focus on, I don't know, force velocity curves and, and, and much more into co like coaching from a transferable coaching perspective. So way more interested in you know, coach-athlete relationship and, and pedagogy and sociology. And, and whereas previously SNC has probably been emerged out of sports science and physiology and, 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 and adaptation probably, isn't it? That's where its origins were. No, understand coaching is definitely starting to take a way more prominence within SNC. No, 100%. And I think that, so uh, quite a few years ago, I went on the like, EIS, like skills for performance type um, week as such. And I did the personality profile and I remember doing it and all, I was with loads of other SNC coaches and they all came back as like these blue data driven type people. And I was the only guy stood in the yellow corner, like the the social person. And I was a little bit like, why am I here like why is everyone over there talking about data and I just want to like talk about relationships and coach and but that's for me where strength and conditioning is so important in the sense of it's like it's coaching ultimately we're building relationships and we're spending a lot of time with people and strength coaches more often than not can spend as much if not more time with athletes than the technical coach does I spent a lot of my career pre working in the university in, in professional football and you know we'd be the first person that the athlete would see when they come in the building in the morning and then the last person that the athlete would see when they go home you know we'd be with them pre-training the technical coach would see them for the 90 minutes on the pitch we'd see them post-training then in the gym in the afternoon so the the relationship we had with the athlete was vitally important because we would kind of be that medium between 
head coach and athlete because ultimately I'm not going to decide whether they play on a Saturday or not, but I can help build that relationship. Just just on that, I mean, this is just a, a, a bit of a guidance to some literature, I guess, but um, Andy Abraham's coach development model um, made up of the who, what, how, process, self and context. That's now been adopted by Kevin Till in an SNC. Yeah, uh, um, yeah, unbelievable paper. So it's one of the papers I've used to kind of write um, the SNC module I teach on at the university. It's kind of like our my kind of north star for our module. Awesome. That's all I want to say. <laughs> You're commissioned with that, Mike. Is that like a prerequisite when you graduate from from? Just shameless self indulgence, there, Phil. If I'm honest. <laughs> Creepy little last author on that one. So <laughs> he doesn't send you a check every month when you just keep plugging his stuff. That's uh, oh no, not at all. <laughs> that is disappointing. <laughs> with that massive office he's got now, he's he's clearly got the money to. So yeah, with his feet up. <laughs> <laughs> Love it, guys. We will uh, we'll shift that one on. So uh, Luke, we are coming to you. What is it that you're going to talk about? So yeah, so as I've kind of alluded to, so not. Traditionally, a, a technical coach, but uh, more kind of SNC, but have a real passion in coaching. I'm not your traditional kind of data guy, although I'm a big fan of the data as well, obviously. So I uh, kind of wanted to see where I could kind of pick an article which kind of sits in the middle. Um, so I've gone for a paper by Nick Winkleman um, and being a, a rugby based podcast for the for the listeners, uh, he is the head of performance at Irish Rugby. So if you wanted to go away and have a little read up, up on him, I think he's a fantastic practitioner. And the paper is attention, Attentional Focus um, and Queuing for Speed Development. And you can kind of take away speed development from this paper and you can kind of replace that with, with anything. And ultimately, this paper is all about the kind of language we use within coaching to kind of drive improvement. And traditionally, the language we use within coaching is kind of thought around being an art. And what this paper kind of introduced, um, kind of going on and um, bringing on kind of some of the traditional work around attentional focus from Wolf and Shear, kind of some of that older, kind of more traditional papers or traditional research, um, is that there is some quite a lot of science behind what we say and it, it has a direct impact on performance outcomes. Um, and it goes on, as I said, that um, notion of attentional focus um, and internal focus. So focusing on the body part. So a cue of, for example, in a back squat, thinking about when you when you're coming out of a back squat, extending your knees, that enters our kind of conscious thoughts um, and it increases that conscious effort and it it creates more of a tax on the body and it makes things a little bit more difficult and potentially can negate performance. And what Winkleman is proposing and, and going on some of that previous re research is that if we have an external focus, so driving up explosively or pushing away from the ground, it makes our movements more autonomous or autonomic and allows the body to kind of self-organize in an unconstrained way. Um, and it essentially makes potentially a more positive outcome on performance. And what I really liked about this paper, it's one of the first papers to do this, or probably the only papers to do it, is it, it creates a kind of a framework for um, cueing, essentially. So it, it's not like prescriptive, you must say this, or you have to do this when you do things. And it's the three Ds, the distance, description, sorry, distance, direction, and description. So it kind of sets up, okay, if you're going to go out and, and say some 
some things to your athletes. You talk about the distance at which you, which you want to say these things, the direction, and then ultimately a description. And that description is kind of the most powerful. So can you create some analogies when you're, when you're um, coaching? And again, that, that's the thing that resonated with me the most. I like a good story, a little bit of a storyteller. So really simple one. Um, and it's the one I often use when I'm, when I'm trying to explain this is like, think about pull-up. So a pull-up, when you're pulling up on a bar, it's only gonna, be, only gonna be effective if you can pull up and you can see over your next door neighbor's fence because you haven't completed the pull-up until you can see over the fence. Because if you're only hit, if you haven't pulled all the way up, your eye line isn't over the fence. You haven't completed the movement. So, um, yeah, that was where it kind of sat with me, and that's that's my little pitch to you about Nick Winkleman and attentional focus. Love it. I, I think we we talked about communication a couple of weeks ago, and just as you say, just how complex it is, and and actually how yeah how impactful it can be. Just just little things around our language with clarity or the certain words that we would use. And I, I just wonder how much, again, almost coming back into that conversation we had earlier around the, the tagging of, and, you know, watching yourself back and that type of stuff. But how, how would you have gone around uh, assessing your own language? It was, was that just something you, you filmed yourself doing, or is that something you got other people to watch? Is that just something you became more aware of by using that kind of model? Were you planning that more? What, what was kind of your experience of implementing this? So, I actually, so the way it first kind of came about this was I heard it on a podcast probably four or five years ago, Nick Winkleman came on a podcast and I was like, I've actually got no idea what I'm saying in these sessions. Like I'm coaching and I've got no idea. So actually I set up a, a GoPro in one of my sessions and I was like, I'm blabbering on, like put your knees here, engage your glutes. What does that even mean? Like, what does that mean to a 15 year old athlete that's just i'm blabbering so it's like so it was very much i became a lot more conscious very quickly because it's and it is the point of say the most with the least so can you get in can you make your point and can you get back out and let that athlete as as the paper says like self-organize and be unconstrained by too many prompts and that's why that analogy piece really sits well with me um ex external focus of attention does in, in the words of russell Earnshaw, fuel my biases um around uh you know, kind of self-organization and, and 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 those sort of things is there are there occasions where you would go for an internal focus like what are the advantages of of, of getting someone to focus on a certain body part because i imagine like with all coaching things it's not black and white it's not only ever external yeah. so but I, yeah. i'm pleading ignorance here so no 100 so again so this was where i kind of went well it can't be this way all the time this can't be the only way it works so i was a little bit like again read read around the subject a little bit and then so the kind of flip of the coin there's a guy called brad schoenfield who is kind of like the hypertrophy kind of guru. So he has a, a blog called Body by Brad. Um, he'll build you some big old glutes if you want them. But he's um, he's kind of the kind of godfather of hypertrophy. And he's done a lot of research into internal focus of attention and how that can increase kind of EMG activation, um, kind of muscle activation during 
kind of bicep curls, really simple study. And he basically found that if we focus on the bicep more and think about the muscle tearing, essentially, when we're doing a bicep curl, it gets more muscle activation and we get bigger gains with three Zs. Um, so we're going to get more gains from internal focus of attention um, than external. But from a performance outcome, so speed, velocity, external focus of attention when we're thought to be more effective. I'm all aboard the internal focus of attention. <laughs> yeah, 100%, those winter games. I guess one thing just from me, I mean, my most of my research around decision-making, so I guess it's those movements under context. And something that really re has resonated with me recently is the idea of like cognitive load. Um, and I think what's important is that external focus can still have a cognitive load to it because you're still, you're still representing it. You're still thinking about it. And I guess I, I feel as though that's been misrepresented uh, at, at times that internal, fo internal focus is cognitive load and external focus is implicit. I, I think those two things need to be moved away from each other. I'm also massively about external focus, but there's still a cognitive load to it. Um, and that, that was something that has really resonated throughout my PhD. Mike, can you just break that down a little bit more? I'm conscious some, uh, there's a real range of people that would listen to this and some will be, you know, academic and, and get that, others might not. So can you just give maybe some examples of what that what you're talking about there? Yeah, so sorry. I, I mean, it's fueled my biases as well, I guess. Um, it, it, around, so you've got kind of like this, this group of literature around reinvestment theory where you've got internal and external focus and then implicit and explicit learning. So you've got these these four things that all sound very similar and sometimes that there's misinterpretation, misrepresentation. And I feel I'm a massive advocate of external focus because when we internalize, we are more likely to have skill failure in a decision-making environment. And by that, I mean reinvestment. So I'm going to consciously process every movement I go through. Well, if I do that, I'm more likely to freeze or I'm more likely to fail. And where the, the misinterpretation could come is that external focus means implicit learning so that I'm not going to internalize anything, but I can still internalize and think about the external, the external cue, if that makes sense. So I just, I just really wanted to, to highlight that disparity, I guess. Does that make sense, Phil? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, definitely. I think, I think that's really nice and clear. So hopefully that's something as I say, I mean, when we, yeah, it's it's all it's all difficult to to just take the theory now, isn't it? Actually, when you get back on the grass, you can get back into thinking about how how we engage in that skill development piece with with players, as you say, whilst making that decision, and actually how how they take that information on board. I guess is the the crucial piece. Um, no, no, really positive. What um what do we think around that? communication element maybe beyond some of the technical details so would would you start thinking about that in a in a tactical sense as well I'm, I'm conscious that that is it's obviously come from conditioning which is predominantly quite te technical is that then about threading that story into practical examples is that about kind of expanding that narrative so they understand um, maybe when they're watching it back as part of the analysis do you know what I mean where where does that kind of start to fit as it progresses beyond just talking about technique yeah my, this is just my experience but of, of what i found useful we, we would use analogies a lot um to help 
groups of players coordinate together um, and create a shared understanding of the picture in front of them and, and, and organize themselves. So we might, and we'd create our own meaning around those words. So at Reading, who I coach, we talk about suffocate, which not in its literal term, but um, you know, we, when we're trying to get the ball onto one side, we don't offer them any passing opportunities out. So we suffocate the ball carrier. So they understand that and they've got meaning around it so that they can try and solve that problem on the pitch. And then they can use that as a reflective mechanism when they look at, when they look at the video. So, yeah, I think they're quite powerful for creating a shared understanding from players. And are also, you create a shared language then as well that, that they can all understand, um, which then doesn't make their decisions for them because they've all got to move and, and decide on the pitch where they go. But actually, I think this is the problem we've had in coaching is we, there's still a right and wrong decision sometimes around should I cover that pass or that pass? Well, it depends on the principle and what you're trying to do here. Um, but, it, you know, it does give us that, gives them the autonomy to make the decisions, but helps them um, in there. So, yeah, I, 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 yes, in, in short. I think that might be the first time you've not sat on the fence, which is great. <laughs> no, I'm, um, I'm just thinking, do you think that then leads into theming? Uh, would, would that be the extension if we're talking about, um, you know, agreed language and that type of stuff, if, if we then thread that into something that is a theme for the game or the week or the season or however it is, do you think that makes it just even more simple? Yeah, so I think when you're looking at it from a coaching perspective, you're looking at how does this group win games and, and what systems and strategies and tactics are we going to employ as a, as a, as a group? And then we're looking at the opposition and going, right, where are the opportunities and threats and which ones are going to be really important this week? And then we design our sessions around those themes and, and ramp up the volume on certain principles or certain words that we think are going to be really important based on how, how we think our team is going to interact with the opposition. So um, if both teams are playing man-to-man, -man, it's going to be a real receive and retain battle. So we'll, we'll, we'll get into those themes and we'll have some language around those that they, all, that they know, know, know and understand. So... Yeah, I, I think it simplifies it for, for athletes. It creates shared meaning and understanding. You know it's working when they're shouting at each other. Um, and it allows them to convey something really complex in one word. Um, so they might shout suffocate at you, Phil, which means you're like, okay, I, know I need to go and do this, rather than going, could you step left and pick up the most dangerous guy to remove the passing angle, please? It's just too much information for a player in one, in one, in one word. Just on that as well, I think like the principle of embedding uh, from an SNC point of view onto the field. So now in rugby, a lot of um, a lot of technical stuff will be done in the gym around movement. So like at the breakdown um, in contact area, especially when they're trying to reduce physical load over the duration of a week. And I think using analogies means that they're that those movements can then be embedded and put directly on field because you can use the same analogies. And I think that if you theme those and give it a language, so a specific movement, a common language can become really powerful for learners. You've actually beat my, me to my question there, Mike. That was, that was gonna be my next question for Luke. Is, is that something you've done, Luke, in terms of taking that language from, from the gym and, and implemented it with the, the actual kind of, you know, on, on grass technical tactical coaches? I think, yeah, so for me, it's so important to have kind of like common language. So like if, let's say we, we were a, a multidisciplinary team on this call and we were all chatting different, using different words to our, co to our athletes, I think that 
that's just going to create confusion. So I think that if we, we all spoke before and, you know, our theme or the way we were going to talk to our athletes is consistent and the, we try and use similar, similar analogies, that makes everything so, so much easier. And then straight away that would start to resonate with the athletes. And then, you know, if, if the word, you know, if we were going to use the word suffocate the dang kind of that and that was our style of play you know i think we're, we're building quite a formidable side here um and straight away you know you know the practices that we're doing in the gym are going to you know improve our ability to suffocate the side i don't think i like that word dominate we're going to go with dominate um you know that, that high press <laughs> yeah you know so you know the, these drills or these practices we're going to really aid in in the way we dominate um, straight away that's going to resonate with them and it's going to you know that one is going to aid the buy-in and straight away it's going to kind of create that cohesion through the coaching staff oh you know straight away it's like they they can see that oh it's not an snc in a silo it's a technical coach in a silo it's an analyst in a silo they've all bought in because they're using similar language oh that's such a cool point luke around that intention creates purpose and more buy-in which creates a great level of commitment to it um so yeah that's i, I love that I, I love the fact within the, the the two minutes we were a coaching team the language got changed midway through as well there was no discussion it just just yeah that's the nature of coaching i guess isn't it um what what's the role of jargon or not how do we avoid jargon within this if we're thinking that analogies and things are useful is it is it then really easy potentially just to slip into stuff that is common sports language and cliches and all that kind of crap or actually is is are we when we say jargon are we potentially meaning some common language and it's it's just maybe we need to find a new way to say it i'm not sure yeah, i would go with the same as like your session plan you need to plan what you're going to say or at least obviously everything's going to there's going to be elements where it's going to be reactive and you've got to kind of coach in the moment but you want to have or you want to have at least a kind of bit of guidance in your mind or written down you know these are some of the key phrases that i'm going to want to use these are some of my key analogies that i'd want to use opposed to going in it's a game of two halves etc whatever it might be um the because then it, it avoids that trap because you know, we've all probably fallen foul of jumping into analogies, sorry, common kind of phrases that we're used, that we've seen before and cliches because athletes would look at us and go, you know, what are you, what are you saying, what are you on about? But if you've kind of prepped what your cues and your, your feedback like you would your session plan, that's going to help that massively. That actually links back. Mike and I were having a conversation before we, we started this just around just some of the challenges I've, I've had with um, Oxford Uni and some of the players are, are reasonably experienced. Others are kind of still like single digit number of games that they've ever played of rugby and, and the difference. But that's been a great challenge for me because you come in with, as you say, kind of game terminology or get odd. And I don't think I'd be too jargony with what I say, but I, there would be kind of rugby language mm-hmm. and they just look at you. And you're just like, yeah, I've, I've not, I've not planned this. I've not, you know, kind of qualified early. If I say this, does any, does everyone know what I mean? Are we all happy with, with what exactly the detail of certain words are, which has been, it's, it's a really nice challenge, but it's one of those kind of, oh, just, just almost back to basics moments, which I think are quite, quite refreshing every now and again when you do. I had the same one with an Italian team when I used to do some community stuff for Wasps. They all came over and some of them spoke really good English and others nothing. 
and you just then you just have to really strip out how many words you're saying because they've got to translate it and you're going if I speak for three or four minutes as I'm now doing in the, telling this story they're just like nah we've got no chance of this so you're like one sentence what's the, what's the least number of words I can say to get my point across which is they're, they're interesting challenges like one of the um I mean, two of the things that make a community of practice an actual community of practice are common jargon and common principles. But I think the stronger a community of practice is, the more embedded those, that jargon is, which means when you go to a new context, you're absolutely screwed because no one understands what you mean. So I, I think that's the, it's just another something to be aware of as a coach. I mean, just on this, like um, Sergio Lara Bercial, who does a lot of work with iCoach Kids and leads Beckett Uni, uh, he he once said to me that being a coach is like being a film director um, where you have to, you've got all these moving parts and you've got to communicate with everyone and they've all got to equate to a performance, but then you're also competing another against another film director and that the, the, it's moving at the same time. And I just think, blimey, poor coaches. <laughs> it's a tough gig, isn't it? Like we all love it. I don't know why we love it quite as much as we do because it's bloody hard. Oh, it's a, Awesome. Uh, guys, I am now really conscious of your time. So I think we will kind of wrap up the discussion there. So I've thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, thank you very much. Do you, do we just want to kind of quick round the table? If you've got, I know some of you have mentioned the other stuff in terms of recommendations already, but if you've got other things you would recommend, then by all means uh, pipe up and uh, let people know what you think. Cool. I would push people to uh, a guy called Sam Jarman and sportsprinciples.com who um, came in and spoke to our students on Tuesday about the meaning of life, the nature of reality and um, who am I? And it's, um, it was intense and, and um, you know, just really challenged people to think about the world differently. So um, he writes some cool, cool articles on there and, and, and just makes us think differently about sport and what the purpose is of it and, and therefore how we might coach. So um, he's been a bit of a revelation for me personally. And um, um, our, our students loved it. Some of them are like, I'm not sure, but I think that was quite, that's quite a good thing anyway. So yeah, I think I'd push coaches to check him out um, and, and check out his website. I don't get paid for that plug, just so we're clear. Right. I, I love Sam. Genuinely, he, yeah, I, I would go as far as saying he's changed my life. So I met him probably four or five years ago. And just, just some of the tweets he puts out just invites discussion in a really positive, friendly way. And I just went, well, I've got a load of questions. He was like, yeah, great. We'll meet for a coffee. And we just, we've been, you know, good mates ever since. And it's, it's phenomenal. So yeah, I'd, I would back that up a hundred percent, but be yeah willing to go down some rabbit holes because there's some, <laughs> your brain's going to hurt. Absolutely. Um, nice great recommendation Mike Luke any other thoughts I guess I've got the book next to me because I'm reading it at the moment but um, massive into conceptions of learning and I think Paul Kirshner's book um, with Carl Hendrick on how learning happens it's pretty much a review of of learning materials from an education setting but ideas of cognitive load um, so on and so forth and I think there's just so many parallels to coaching in creating a learning environment and yeah, great book. I advise anyone to buy it. Again, I'm not on commission. <laughs> great stuff. Thank you very much. Uh, Luke, anything from you? It was actually a book that I had down by the side, actually. It's linked to kind of creating like, cues, feedback, all that kind of stuff. It was actually Conscious Coaching, The Art and Science of Building Buy-in. Good, good read. 
if anyone uh, fancy it. It does have a barbell on the front, but it's not all about sets and reps, I promise. Um, it's a really, a really nice book, um, kind of around building an, a, a solid kind of coaching environment um, that kind of facilitates learning um, for your athletes to create autonomy. So, yeah, check it out. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of collect links for all of those and I'll, I'll put those in the uh, in the blurb for people that, uh, that are listening to this. So, um, gents, again, I'll round up the roundup, but thank you very much. It was absolutely fantastic. Really enjoyed it. Uh, we hope for those of you listening, you've enjoyed the episode. Thanks again to my guests for their time and contributions. Uh, links to all the content, as promised, will be available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. Please subscribe, like and share. As always, I'd like to thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well.